2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reconsider, our first post-election episode, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. But this time, we decided to do a lot of analysis for you. We're going to be talking about who voted for whom, and maybe a little bit of why. Uh, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> we, we got into, you know, we don't do exit polling. But we got into the exit polling and compared a lot of it to 2016. Turns out some other people did that as well. Washington Post has a good article on it that we link, of course. But we uh, decided to get a little more granular and not just present exit polling data, because by God, you don't want that in a podcast anyway. Um, (laughs) But we decided to try to answer some specific questions that people might have. I think a lot of them, if if you're not a Republican, the primary question was, about a lot of this stuff uh about a lot of like who who voted for trump and who voted for biden so we want to get into some of the details about some trends that stuck out and then untangling some of those trends and and i think answering some questions about or speculating a little bit or, or helping us understand a little bit better some of the group's that voted for Biden that were a surprise and voted for Trump that were a surprise because there were definitely both groups. There were definitely people who came out for each president that I think generally the pollsters weren't expecting.
1: So I want to ask you, Eric, a teaser question for the end of the episode. Mm. After after we walk through this data, I want to refer back to a prior episode that we did about the reorganization of political parties over time. And I want to ask you if If you think that this is what we're witnessing based on the data we're seeing, or not, but we'll get back to it.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's funny. I was gonna say, oh, I'm afraid of predicting things, but it turns out on Tuesday night, I predicted every single electoral vote correctly, which I was very excited by. So, those of you who missed it, we had Xander and I hosted uh, our own. You've all seen the John King memes running around with the magic wall, possibly on cocaine. Well, I was on beer and. Uh, running around with my own magic wall on Facebook live. We will do this again for the midterms because it was such a good time. People actually had fun on election night in 2020, and they were probably the only ones in America. (laughs) And uh, unless you're Biden's campaign manager, that they were probably having a good time. But anyway, so Biden won uh, and he, he, in winning, he took back Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan and flipped Arizona blue for the first time since 1996 And Georgia blue for the first time since 1992, which for those of us who were born in the 80s, just remember, folks, this is getting on 30 years ago. If you don't feel old yet, you will by the end of this episode. (laughs) And what's interesting is, is it's a slightly different map than what we've been seeing kind of consistently for a long time. Like if you remember back in the day and by back in the day, I mean like the 2000s and 2010s, you know, Florida and Ohio were the states everyone cared about. Right. And if I went back to you in 2000 and said, hey, there's going to be an election where the Republican wins Florida and Ohio and North Carolina uh, and Iowa and loses the election, you'd have laughed me out. Right. And so it means that the map had the map is the map isn't static. And we're going to be not just looking at kind of what was different between 2016 and now, but as much as we can look at look at how voting patterns. Have changed overall because the other the other thing about the map that's clearly different is when we were looking at 2000 and 2004, Colorado, New Mexico, and Virginia were at least in play, and now those days are over. Arizona used to be solidly red; those days are over. So a lot is changing, and it's it's really interesting to see what it means about how the country's changing.
1: So looking at the election overall, the election results overall, Biden underperformed a lot of the polls uh, by quite a lot. And we're not going to get into all the details of why this may happen. And you can go and read Nate Silver at 538 about that. He's actually written a a nice article kind of walking through his logic. But I mean, me personally, I feel like if if the meta-analysis is faulty, then it could either be the meta-analysis or the source data, which is all the different polls. So there's like a couple of different places where we could look if we wanted to improve polling. But that's outside of the scope of this podcast. In terms of like, what that demographic looked like, the voting electorate, it was the highest percent turnout since 1900. 1900. That's a long time ago. And it's a
2: big 120 deal. 120 years. Yeah. 120 literally, years. literally, no one in America was alive back then. Yeah. That's... There is not a, I looked this up, no one is older than 120 years old in America right now. So nobody was alive the last time we had higher turnout. So that's a big deal,
1: and it's even more of a big deal when you factor in the, the, the fact that there's a lot more people around now that can vote than in 1900. Younger people, women, uh, and of course, there's no Jim Crow, which limited the black vote on certain parts of the country. And there are clearly still major barriers to a lot of folks voting, and we've talked about this in prior episodes. But in short, America came out in record numbers to make its voice heard in a way that has really not happened in the modern era, depending on how you define modern, I guess,
2: but in the last 120 years. So while Biden underperformed his polls, and that makes a lot of people feel disappointed if they're Democrats, uh, it is a big win, historically speaking, and here's why. Biden received at least 15.9% of the vote as some more votes from big blue states get counted that might squeak up to 51%, but 50.9%, let's just ship it for now, uh, is what he received, which, you know, Obama did a lot better. And there are, you know, it's not a huge vote total, unless we only look at, unless we only look at challengers to incumbent presidents, right? So this doesn't happen all that often, right? Kerry ran against Bush. Romney ran against Obama, Clinton ran against H.W. Bush, etc. And none of them, no one no challenger to an incumbent president has gotten this share of the vote or higher since FDR in 1932 when he beat Hoover. So it's the best performance by any challenger to an incumbent president since FDR 1932. So it's also Meaningful in that a larger percentage of the electorate came out to get rid of the person in office and replace them than has happened since, you know, the Great Depression.
1: So along with those with those headline turnout numbers, there were a couple of demographic surprises in 2020 yeah. compared to 2016 as well. And there's actually a great uh, Washington Post uh, It's not really an infographic. It's like a set of different graphics that you link Mm. to. And we'll include a link to that, that a lot of these numbers come from. And if you're having trouble visualizing what exactly we're talking about, this will help. It kind of has like arrows pointing in the right direction and whatnot. But to get into the detail, Trump did much better among black Americans in 2020 than he did in 2016. So in 2020, he got 12% of the black American vote. And in 2016, he got 8%.
2: Yeah, and that, of course, I think surprises a lot of Democrats and particular progressives, given the president's response to the Black Lives Matter protests, etc. And so we'll, we'll do a little bit of speculating uh, as to why, based on some interviews and, and other data. Trump also did better among Latino Americans than in 2016. So with, with Black Americans, he did essentially 50% better, right? 12 rather than 8%. Among Latino Americans, uh, he had 32 rather than 28 percent, so was seventh better. Not not nearly as big a difference, um, although some different we're using the New York Times exit polls. Um, if you look at some different exit polls, he might have done even better. But uh, one thing to keep in mind is a lot of articles came out right after the election, looking at a lot of a lot of results and, and a lot of stuff hadn't been counted yet. So we're still kind of doing the reckoning. Um, but it does seem he did better among Latino Americans than previously. Similarly, uh, a surprise to you know. There's a lot of articles. If you go look up, you know, Trump uh, Latino voters, you see all these articles from you know respectable but left leaning journalism such as The Atlantic and The Washington Post and The New York Times and et cetera, et cetera. That that are grappling with that, right? That say that, that essentially say you shouldn't have been surprised, but acknowledging that if you're a reader of that. Uh, uh if you're a reader of those newspapers you probably were right and the
1: the summary explanation the nutshell is there there is no latino vote there are lots right. of different latino americans in the us that can vote that have
2: very different and varied identities yeah and we'll get more into that later yeah so even though trump did better among many voters of color Note that Biden still cleaned up among voters of color, right? He won 88% of black Americans and nearly 70% of Latino Americans. And the total share of white voters was down by 4%. So what this means is that this this, uh, non-white voting group was larger by 4% comparatively compared to 2016. So even though Trump did slightly better among that group, Biden still had such an advantage that their relatively higher turnout um, was a big part of his victory, in particular in uh, from the exit polling I looked at in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada and Georgia. Again, even though he didn't perform as well with those groups because as Clinton did in terms of total percentage, because so many more Latino Americans and Black Americans vote Democrat than they do Republican, and because they made up a larger share of the electorate this year, in uh, you know in many states, this ended up being very important. And uh, I think is a is a flagpost moment that both Democrats and Republicans should be paying attention to regarding future elections, as. Uh, winning winning the white american vote and and we're going to talk about why we hate these kind of demographic blocks but but in in insofar as people think about appealing to white Americans versus Americans of color, appealing to white Americans becomes less and less appealing exclusively to what Americans becomes less and less viable over time
1: now, what about if you split this data, this voting data uh, economically instead of by you know these large racial blocks that? you know, we don't necessarily like. Well, Biden did a bit better among Americans that make less than fifty thousand dollars a year and did much better among Americans who make five hundred thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a year. And I'll come back and I'll I'll read those numbers in a second. But Trump did seven points better among Americans making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Now these are In comparison to 2016 turnout uh, numbers. So if you look at the less than $50,000 vote where Biden did better than in 2016, it was 55% in 2020 compared to 52% of people who made less than $50,000 a year in 2016 voting for Hillary Clinton. For the $50,000 to $100,000 income range, which can roughly be called middle class, you know, that's a reasonable salary for uh, a, a broad middle class definition. Um, that number in 2020 for, was 57 percent for Biden and it was 46 percent in for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So that was a pretty substantial margin for Biden relative. Massive.
2: To- right. An 11 point difference went from a a minority of voter of middle class voters voting for the Democrat uh for the democratic candidate to a substantial majority 57% voting for the democratic candidate and i think this is one of the big stories of this election
1: yeah and we we just went through a lot of numbers but the uh the headline story is the middle class came out uh came out to bat for biden
2: yeah and the the upper class so people you know and and there're so many ways we can define the upper class but people making over 100k a year i think it's like the top Quarter of the nation, or the top fifth of the nation, something like that, in terms of of income. So we're not talking about the ultra rich. Things get weird when you get up that high, and nobody even bothers with exit polling people who make over a million. So we don't know. But uh, but among like the you know just the upper the upper group of income earners, Trump did even better than in twenty sixteen. One of the things to keep in mind about this there's a there's a link to this, and I didn't know how to like really put it in notes. But if we split by income and education, it turns out that people who are people who make more money and have a college degree were more likely to vote for Biden, and people who make more money and don't have a college degree were more likely to vote for Trump. And so it shows what's really interesting is it sh- it shows this potential kind of class divide where you know we class is even, or like kind of how you think about the world isn't purely based on your income. Right. Again, it averaged out so that Trump did better among people making over a hundred thousand dollars. But, but if you if you take that group and see who's got a college degree, it's the more, you know, I dare say blue collar wealthy or, you know, just non-professional class uh, wealthy that uh, broke for Trump. And it was this like professional class, you know, doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, engineers, people who need a college degree for their job to make a lot of money that that broke for Biden. And I thought that was I don't know what to make of that, but it was definitely interesting. It's not just rich people like one candidate or another. It's that you can you can find really simple ways to split rich people and they start to have really stark differences in who they prefer.
1: And speaking of the economy, Biden did really well in prosperous urban areas, including flipping a number of them, such as Phoenix, which was a big part of his win in Arizona. And there's been a trend since about 2000 that the better that an urban area is doing economically, the more likely it is to vote Democratic. Um, and this year, Trump actually did better compared to 2016 among places that are struggling. And we'll come back to this in a little bit more detail later.
2: Yeah, because it's complex and surprising, and in, in, you know, versus your well, yeah, we'll get to it. But there's a lot of kind of a conventional storytelling about elections that that challenges. Um, I think the, so we talked about the middle class being a major headline. We talked about the, the growth of non-white voters being a major headline. Headline Major headline uh, number three is that Biden did way, way better among independents and moderates than Clinton. In both cases, 12 points better. So going from, I'm not even going to read the numbers, but, but for independents and people who identify as moderate. There's a 12 point swing towards Biden. And, you know, and, and so one story you could tell from that is that, like, the, le- the less partisan Americans in 2016 preferred Trump. Trump got a small majority of, or he got a majority of independents in 2016. And in 2020, they changed their mind and said, uh, we want Biden instead. And, well, change their minds the wrong thing, right? Biden and Clinton are not interchangeable but they voted for the Republican in 2016 with some major, you know, with a majority and they voted for the Democrat in 2020 with a majority. Um, But what's interesting is turnout among independents was actually meaningfully lower by, by five points. And what I think that means is that you just had this massive surge of hyper motivated Republicans and Democrats coming out to vote. So um, because turnout's up everywhere, Right. Like every group came out in in higher numbers this year than 2016. The fact that independents make up a smaller share is that Republicans and Democrats were even more motivated, even more, more motivated than independents were. And that's not terribly surprising. Right. We've we've shown in Wedge and all this stuff over and over again that the more partisan you are, the more likely you are to vote. And America seems more partisan than before. Independents tend to be a little bit less You know, devoted to one side or the other. So they're going to be a little bit less motivated, comparatively less motivated. They're more motivated than they were in 2016, but not as much more motivated as the Republicans and the Democrats, if that makes sense.
1: Another important story from the election this year was a stronger than ever urban or rural divide, which maybe a lot of people wouldn't be surprised necessarily to hear. But the essence of it is the chances that you vote Democratic increase. As population density in an area increases. So, the more urban an area is, the more likely it was that someone voted Democrat in 2020. Biden also massively outperformed conventional Democrats with US veterans. So, he won 44% of the veteran vote compared to Clinton's 34% four years ago.
2: Yeah. Uh, which, which, you know, veterans are 13% of the population. It's meaningful. And so, you know, again, veterans still voted majority Trump, but it was a very small majority for the first time in a very, very long time voting for, you know, uh, that that a, a Democratic president started started sneaking up towards half of the veteran population. I, if I recall correctly, the last time was Truman. Hmm. Um, yeah, I believe it was true. So and then among first time voters the share of the voting population that was first time voters was significantly up 14% versus 10%. So you had all these people that and you often have about nine or 10% of the population that are first time voters, right? Just because that that's how aging works. And, but what's interesting is that this year we had a, we had a even bigger, even though everyone else came out to vote in big numbers, first time voters came out even more than everyone else to vote even more bigly yeah exactly even more bigly right everything is more but this is more more and and um and and that's actually you know in a way it's delightful just to see a lot of people that uh haven't voted before coming out to vote and exercising their their rights as americans and biden cleaned up so he won literally two to one among first-time voters And in 2016, Clinton also won among first time voters, but she won like she won 5740. And so it was it was like more like one and a half to one. So you had so, you know, this strongly suggests that that you had a lot of people that were otherwise kind of just politically disengaged. Right. For a long time. Again, huge portion of the population, 150 million people voted. So even if we just think of this four percent, that's like that's six million people. So you have the 6 million people who've like, you know, never voted before on top of the other 15 million that had never voted before. But but like had chances in the past and didn't bother, didn't vote in 16, maybe even didn't vote in 12. um, And they came out in force to vote for Joe Biden. And it's, you know, again, I think it's I think it's a meaningful part of the story and why they did. We can speculate about a lot of stuff, but it
0: definitely happened. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrough.com slash ACAST. That's burrough.com slash ACAST. Burrough.com slash ACAST.
1: Now, if you break out the white vote uh, between men and women, Biden actually did seven points better than Clinton among white men. But he only did one point better among white women Than did Clinton. And this is kind of interesting because before the election, uh, we thought and a lot of folks were writing about how the quote suburban white woman vote was going to be really uh, influential and impactful in the 2020 election, notably as a part of Biden's coalition and the total vote count that he gets. Um, But it turns out, comparatively, the shift among white men from 2016 to 2020. Was more important than that suburban white women vote,
2: right? So yeah, it's not to say that. Uh, yeah, it's not to say that the 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 suburban white women who you know we we I think we even shared some articles about this. Um, you have these like really hyper motivated groups in kind of the the uh, Great Lakes areas hitting the ground. You know, doing a lot of the groundwork for Biden. Often women. It seems like I don't have good data, but it, it seems like women did a disproportionate amount of heavy lifting this year um, in terms of campaigning for Biden. But it was men who, of course, in 2016, white men voted very strongly in favor of Trump and and this year also preferred Trump, uh, but by a much, much smaller degree. So it was much close to a 50-50 split among white men. So um more of them change their minds or something like that right cuz turned out so much higher that that uh that was it that a lot of white men that didn't vote before showed up kind of thing but but clearly clearly among white men in america there was a there's a uh substantial change in how they think about who they're voting for and there are it's 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 kind of hard to say when you really look at state by state uh, when you look at state by state exit poll data it's it's hard only because like you just have to do a lot of math. Um, it's not it's not hard in the sense that you can't draw this conclusion, but it does look like there are a number of states such as Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania where there was a substantial sh- where well we know there was a substantial shift among white men of this degree somewhere between like seven and nine percent. And had those white men not shifted, I think with some rough back of the envelope math, Biden might not have won this election. We
1: have. A- a couple more data points and I'm just going to run through them really quickly Mm -hmm. because I want to get to the point of the podcast that I actually think is going to be more interesting where we start to interpret some of these numbers and, you know, figure out what our takeaways are. But just a few more points because they are interesting. Biden did six points better among Catholics compared to 2016. And, you know, Biden's going to be the, not the first Catholic president, but a Catholic president. And he did eight points better among white evangelicals. So he actually ended up eating into a uh, core part of Trump support in places like Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania that turned out to be so important. Biden did five points better than Clinton did among union voters. And Biden did a lot better among younger Americans than did Clinton, but they made up a smaller part of the electorate. So there's actually not a percentage jotted down here. But um, I'm gonna. There, there's a link here uh, to the Washington Post, and if you want to find out how young Americans voted 2016 to 2020, go check it out. What I I want to bring the conversation to right now, mm. yeah, is some of these things that we alluded to in the at the top of the episode. We talked about how there is no such thing as a quote unquote Latino vote and a quote unquote Black American vote, and it's it's difficult sometimes because you know we'll write these show notes that we roughly use as reference when we're talking. Um, When we're going through these podcasts, and we will include these scare quotes, but I don't always know if I'm emphasizing enough (laughs) for you to feel those scare quotes. So the suburban white women vote very scare quotey. Just in case that wasn't obvious, I can
2: hear you. I can hear you doing the scare (laughs) quotes with your arms when you say it like that. Good. Okay, I'm glad it's obvious. Um,
1: <laughs> But let's start first with the Latino vote, or you know, there's the no such thing the as the not Latino, Latino vote, vote. the, yeah, the exactly. not Latino vote,
2: the mirage that is the Latino vote. You know, I think I'll I was gonna bury this, but I think I'm gonna jump to the front of something that I have experienced in my circles of Boston and San Francisco, which are super not representative of the rest of the country, right? In in many many ways, but you know i think among among kind of young progressive you know hit tech people uh there's just this, there was this belief that like ah, yes trump wants to build a wall you know between the us and mexico and even even built a little bit of it and uh you know kids in cages which uh, which i'm saying flippantly but was was appalling and you know and just generally kind of railing against immigration and so uh you know so of course latino people many of whom are are you know either recent immigrants or their parents or grandparents are recent immigrants there's a portion of them that are you know or they know people who are or you know they they, or they have maybe have solidarity with our but anyway there was this just general idea that um of course latino people are going to vote against trump and they did right they did 65 of them did uh but a but Perhaps what is, you know, what's probably surprising to many folks is that more Latinos voted for Trump in 2020 than in 2016. And so the thing I want to run to the front of is, of course, you know, not only not only are Latino Americans not a single block, right? Lots of different countries, um, lots of different like timelines in how long their families have been in the United States. Some have been in the United States before there was the United States, Right. Like, like the United States immigrated to them. And, but you think about it, right? I mean, yeah, with guns, well but I uh, <laughs> actually remember, I remember my dad asking this guy, uh, he said, how long has your family been in the United States? And the guy was like, oh, 450 years or so. And my dad like does this shifty eye thing. He's like, America's not that old. He was like, we, you know, my, my family traces back to the Spanish colonists. Right. And they like land, you know, they, and they showed up in Southern California. You're like, holy smokes. Yeah. You know, and that was his term. He's like, yeah, America immigrated to them," And I added the with guns, but it's a
1: funny way to describe conquest. Immigration with guns.
2: Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> did you know uh, that
1: my family traces back to about the 1640s? Uh I,
2: I figure your family traces back to uh, a few billion years ago. But but <laughs> when you say to the 1640s, what do you mean? In America. Oh, OK. Or cool. what became America? No, I didn't know that. That's yeah. neat. Yeah, sixteen forty. That's really early. Yeah, neat. Yeah. Um. So, anyway, what's uh, what was I about to say? Ah, yes. So, so as much as there are many different nationalities and many different you know timelines of of families in the United States, so not all of them are recent immigrants, right? The key thing is, look, man, you look in the mirror and you are a complex person, right? Like, look in the mirror, right, and you go and and think about like, oh, am I just defined by the color of my skin? Oh, wait, no, I have all of these like. You know, I I have my religion and I have my family and whatever it's doing. And I have my job and I have things that I like and I have things that I don't like. And I have, you know, moral and and, uh, you know, and ethical positions and and friends that have certain experiences. And I've had certain experiences that have taught me certain things. And guess what? Everyone's like that. Right. Including Latino people. So to a large extent, I, I just remember reading a number of these articles. And the reason for some of my emphasis is that. In reading some of these articles, there came across a bit of resentment of everyone running around being like, "Oh, you're Latino, so you must think this way." They're like, "No, I am a person. (laughs) I have my own thoughts, right?" And like the amount of melanin in my skin has actually surprisingly little to do with what goes on in my brain. Leave me alone. And and so I think that is you know that's a key lesson here. But I think there's there are some there are some like particularly interesting tidbits that we got out of some of these. You know, some of these articles that go a little bit a little bit past like, oh right, yes, you know, people of color are are people as well.
1: yeah, and I think it's worth actually having an early in the episode reconsider moment here. um the idea that people are people and not just their category descriptions mm-hmm. is <laughs> um it it's one of those things that just like seems obvious, right? But so often the conversation is shaped by how you define the categories. And yes, that's true exactly. of of individuals, ethnicity or race as well as just the topics and how you describe those topics. And Eric, you wrote about this in Wedged in your book about how the way you describe the problem can radically change how people respond to like survey questions, because all of a sudden they have to pick a side, right? So these categories are useful. They help us extract information from really complicated data. But at the same time, we have to remember that they are generalizations. And I think that that's that's a useful point to just keep in mind whenever we're talking about other large groups of people, especially our own countrymen.
2: Mm -hmm. So I think two other, maybe three other key points I want to dig into here. And Xander, I'm just going to run through it. So one of them is that Latino Americans are disproportionately entrepreneurs in the United States uh, compared to white Americans. And um, one thing we saw in the exit polling is that again, if you slice and slice and slice and slice and you get to Latino voters in certain States at certain times, maybe not at certain times, cause this is all in November, but in certain States, the economy was like disproportionately a deciding factor in who they voted for, especially if they voted for Trump. Um, and so, you know, so for, for some of these folks, especially like in Southern Florida and Southern Texas, which were, which, which. You know, th- th- uh yeah, the in those areas, high number of entrepreneurs, disproportionately high Trump support among Latino Americans, and uh the economy was very important to them. And, you know, regardless of how regardless of how your experience of the economy has been, and we'll actually get to this in a sec, you know, we we what I don't know is like if I am a descendant of Cuban immigrants in Miami or a descendant of like Mexican or El Salvadoran immigrants in southern Texas in those counties what, you know, what is the, how has the economy changed in the last four years? And because of what policies, right? Um, and and so we could speculate and start to tell some composite stories potentially about maybe life is a lot better for a lot of these folks um, who live in these areas. and um, And so they may be much more thinking like, hey, status quo, carry on. This is actually working out really well. That was one thought. Another thought is that I think we have to keep in mind in particular that Trump was, you know, Trump was against illegal immigration and, you know, and also like wanted to wanted to change a lot of policy on immigration in general. But general immigration policy had a much like broader impact than just on, you know, people hoping to immigrate to the United States from Central and Latin America. But uh, but there was a from an Atlantic article, I'm just going to quote a man named Mr. Enriquez. Uh, That was interviewed that that I think makes the point really well. And it was actually he was interviewed after the president's campaign launch speech in 2015 when he said Mexico was, quote, sending people that have lots of problems and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. End quote. And uh, Enriquez told the interviewer that he could forgive the president's comments. Quote, I know exactly the status of Mexico and how crime has completely just taken over the beautiful country that is Mexico. So when President Trump was talking about what Mexico is sending, I immediately knew. I understood what he meant. Did he word it correctly? No, but he did emphasize that, you know, it isn't all Mexicans. And so I'm also going to just share a quick anecdote that I know a guy that worked um, in technology for the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol in southern Texas, And, and he's actually he's quite liberal, Democratic guy, and he described it as a war zone. And because you had like cartels just like busting through and getting into gunfights. And, you know, they would they would literally like they would literally like to- use a torch cutter to try to cut through parts of the fence and and then blast when successfully do it and blast through it or set mines to try to blow up Border Patrol agents. And so, you know, you may have a lot of people that actually like it may surprise a lot of people who don't you know, who don't live in southern Texas that you have a lot of people who happen to be Brown, who live in Southern Texas. And they're like, yeah, a wall would be great, right? Because this is kind of scary. So there's all these experiences that, that you know, that folks have to summarize, like different national identities, different timelines of how long their families in the United States. And so many of them are just like, I'm American first. That's just my identity. High number of entrepreneurs uh, who, who uh, care a lot about the economy, um, different economic conditions in different parts of the country. And potentially an experience along the border that all impact decision making that might, you know, that that might have favored Trump in some of these areas that, again, surprised folks because in large part because they said, ah, yes, the Latino vote, you know, voted 28 percent for Trump in 2016 and 32 percent for Trump in 2020. And if we just think the Latino vote, it is going to be a surprise. And I think there's a similar story with people wondering, hey, you know, why did black Americans come out in larger proportion for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016? You know, again, this is uh, this. I mean, I think it may even be a surprise for Trump voters. And uh, as, as much as, of course, when you're the winner or when things go well for you, you're like, oh, yeah, I always thought that it's like a cognitive bias. But I think it may be a surprise for every, everyone. And of course, black Americans aren't a block. Right. Um, you have very different experiences for Black Americans in different parts of the country, um, you know, the Northeast versus the Deep South versus, um, you know, versus the West. And, and again, while Trump did better generally among Black Americans, state by state, it varied wildly. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, Biden did six points better than Clinton did among Black Americans. And it was a big part of win, him winning, despite, uh, winning the state. Um, in Michigan, Biden did worse as a percentage than Clinton among black Americans. He did much better in nevada uh and interestingly, in Georgia, Clinton and Biden got the same portion um, of the vote of of the vote of black Americans that came to vote and So we might think about why and and I think there's the you know the obvious narrative of you know of of after George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, Trump doubled down on law and order right and um, and of course, like black Americans you know there are many indicators to tell us that they are disproportionately victimized by police violence, and so one might think like, ah, yes, this is like black Americans because they can relate to this so much because you know relate to this this you know police violence and brutality so much, um the president seems to be doubling down on on you know the the cops should be able to be tough guys in order to you know preserve law and order and and so like not care about this problem. Um, whereas, of course, Democrats are, you know, you had uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi with the the whatever, gosh, I forget the name, the the scarves, like, you know, kneeling and holding up the Black Lives Matter fist. Like, why aren't why aren't more black Americans voting for for the Democrats rather than Republicans? What the heck happened? And one of the one of the polls I I found actually at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests and the height of support for Black Lives Matter, because it did wane a little bit. Just after like prolonged, just prolonged exposure to, you know, prolonged exposure that Americans had to, you know, videos of things burning and and windows being broken and stuff being stolen during during riots across the country. So even at the height of that, 80 percent, 81 percent of black Americans said that they don't want less of a police presence in their community. Mm -hmm. Right. Vast, vast majority of black Americans said, no, 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 we don't want less. And this doesn't jibe well with defund the police. Like it doesn't drive well at all because you defund the police, you're going to have less police presence. It's just, that's how money works. Right. And one of the things, my, my own speculation here is that it's probably the case that again, depending on if, if you're a black American, depending who you are, where you live, what, like, you know, uh, what crime is like around you, how safe your neighborhood is. And, and what experience you've had with the police, you know, this this number of 81 percent suggests that the, the vast majority of black Americans. And again, it's going to differ where you are and, and what your experience was, but value the police as being very important parts of their health and safety. And why is that? Well, we also have to remember that in addition to black Americans being disproportionately victims of police violence, they're also disproportionately victims of all sorts of crime. Right. And that crime happens far more often than police violence. And so, you know, I mean, black Americans are disproportionately victimized by by murder, by theft, by all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, I think if if we're saying, ah, yes, black lives matter as like kind of like if, if we think like the black lives matter activists represent how all or most black Americans think about the country, it's probably a lot more nuanced than that and so i don't know if that you know that increase in support for president trump by black americans is because of the kind of defund the police messaging and and what fear that would create like i I'd, I'd be you know if i knew people that had been you know killed i'd be worried uh so i don't know if that's related but i think it's at least a good opportunity to stop and reconsider a little bit of Of do we, when we try to, you know, when any one of us, whether we're, we're black or white or what tries to model how we think another person thinks about the world, these moments when, when we see large groups of people not act in the way that our model works, the people aren't wrong. The model is (laughs) right.
1: Or you could just explain rationality differently.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, but it means, it means that the model needs to be updated. And if it doesn't explain what we see. And so, and so again, I don't know if the defund the police messaging was had a backlash effect against Democrats. We may learn more in time. I bet there are, I bet there are smart people thinking about doing those kinds of interviews, but, uh, but I did find, I, I found that statistic very interesting. And it's also the case that you know before the coronavirus black americans did have the lowest unemployment in history right and and if you know it it is a very common american thing to vote for the status quo when things seem to be going well and so there there uh there's again for everyone in, in america there's so much going on and they identify you know they they think about how the country should be run in in very complex ways and that may be that may those two things may explain part of the um, part of the surprise or they may not.
1: Now, there are a couple of other takeaways from the from the 2020 election that doesn't just have to do with uh, racial or ethnic blocks. One, for example, we already kind of hinted at was how geography really changed a lot this year. There was a lot of change between states. So Trump actually did better in Florida and about as well in Ohio and Nevada as he had done. So which states are in play where are, are beginning to change a little bit. And I know we've done shows on the Electoral College, but boy, do I want to revisit that issue because it just mm. it keep, keeps seeming to be front in mind in a lot of people's attention. So in addition to changes between states and which states are in play, kind of being a little bit different than it was a couple of years The intrastate story is also important. So Mm -hmm. how are the demographics dispersed within a state? How densely populated is a certain area? In simpler terms, how important is urbanization in how a person votes? It's playing a role, slowly but surely. Urban areas continue to grow faster than rural ones, and it continues to happen basically disproportionately in places like Atlanta, Phoenix, Dallas, Houston, Austin. Um, it turns out that Texas has six of the top 15 fastest growing urban areas uh, in the country and three of the top four, if you want to slice a little bit differently. And, you know, you're probably you probably know that urban areas tend to vote heavily Democratic. And that's true more now than ever. So mm-hmm. I think that's going to be an interesting thing in the next couple of years. How will hopefully when this this pandemic is contained to a greater degree? Will the desire to leave the cities continue and will that become a uh, become a long term secular trend Mm. or or will the long term secular trend that was in place before the pandemic continue? Will uh, immigration to cities continue once people feel like they can benefit from all all the perks of living in a dense uh, in a dense location once again? I don't know, but that's definitely one of the long-term trends that I'm looking for in the next, well, maybe mid-term trends that I'm looking for in the next couple of years. The fact is the country is changing demographically. Uh, the Hispanic population increased from about 16% of, of the population to about 18%. Although, to be fair, Eric, you made you, you did most of the work on, on this particular episode, and I don't see which years those are for.
2: Oh, yes. Thank you. Uh, between censuses, so 2010 to 2020.
1: There you go. So the Hispanic population increased from 16% in 2010 to 18% in 2020. And Black and Asian American populations have grown as well. And uh, despite some of the interesting findings that we found about variation within blocks that we've talked about on this episode, Black and Asian Americans tend to vote heavily Democratic. So these are long-term demographic trends that I, I think are going to be really interesting to watch because they always move, not always, they usually move slowly enough as to not draw enough attention to them to make it to like headline titles and things right. that are really sensational. And yet oftentimes they are the essence of what's driving a lot of the things that we do see day to day.
2: Yeah, i I have a I have an inkling that for example Ohio is long term out of play. Like we're going to stop talking about as goes Ohio so goes the nation, uh, which will be fascinating, but I think it's going to it it has a chance to be read for a long time. And a big part of it is that people are net leaving Ohio rather than net going to Ohio. And those people tend to be young. They tend to be people who go get college degrees, right? They'll they'll like go somewhere and get a college degree and stay. There are a number of cities that uh, you know, that were fairly, that are somewhat depopulated. You know, I, I, Michigan is a great example of this, although it's reversing, right? Michigan, you know, Michigan went red in 2016. And it may be part, it may be due in part because Detroit was a lot smaller in 2016 because a lot of people left, right? After the Great Recession. Whereas Michigan had been so blue for so long that I think it was a shock to everyone that Michigan went red, but it's less urban than it was. Whereas there are other states that are becoming much more urban, such as Arizona and Texas. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that cause the map to shift insofar as these generalizations, you know, these generalizations are at least consistent about trends, right? They're not consistent. They don't tell you anything about a person, but they do tell you about trends. The the other patchworky thing that we're seeing is about the economy. So Xander had mentioned earlier that urban cities that are pros- urban areas that are prospering voted Democratic, and areas that are struggling, so have high unemployment or like low low employment growth, voted Trump. And what we're not going to say necessarily is is what's going through people's minds. Although you'd, you'd assume that if it's economic, there's this belief that. Um, you know, Trump is our, you know, but the economy grew a lot under Trump before the coronavirus and unemployment dropped a lot. And, uh, and that, you know, we want more of that, right? We really need it. Maybe the thinking, but, um, but what's interesting is that this, the, this economic impact and, and the reason we know there is an economic impact is because of, of in these exit polls, who says that the economy is the most important thing for them. Or, or one of the most important things for them, as opposed, to, say, the pandemic or healthcare or immigration, or all these other things. So we look at we look at people saying the economy is really important to me. I voted Trump. I live in this area that's struggling. We can start to see a trend, and um, and we saw this trend of again this patchiness where where the struggling areas voted for Trump and prosperous areas voted for Biden. And there are two things that seem backwards about this, or that seem weird about this. One of them is that it seems backwards. Typically, if things are going well, you vote for the status quo, or at least that's the belief. In fact, I remember, um, I remember reading very specifically when I was taking political economy that people in the United States they tend to vote, uh, they tend to vote for the status quo a little bit more. You know, they're like good, you know, nice, nice R squared values on the line on the regression line. Um, They tend to vote a little bit more for the status quo if the country as a whole is doing well, and they tend to vote a little bit less for the status quo if the country as a whole is doing poorly compared to the past, right? As Reagan asked when he ran against Jimmy Carter, are you better off than you were four years ago? And and so so two things like two things about that paper seem wrong. One, the people who are doing best are voting for the new guy, not the old, not the status quo. Um, And. And two, they're not voting for the country as a whole. What this, this paper I remember reading, you know, 13 years ago now or more. Oh, my God. I don't even want to think about it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but what it was saying was that interesting, and it's an old paper. It's kind of a canon in the political science world, um, was that people don't vote their individual pocketbooks. So what's interesting is you don't have a strong trend be- between I lost my job and I'm voting the bum out you have a strong trend of a lot of people lost their jobs and we're voting the bum out so people tend to vote not for them not based on their pocketbook but instead on the national economy but it seems now that it's a little bit more regional so that's new and weird and scary for us political scientists why are people thinking about this differently but then the other thing is you know the other thing is we had this backwardsness where um people who voted for Trump tended to be in these more struggling areas and Um, It may just be that due to increasing like partisanship and polarization, there's, you know, there's just this belief among Republicans that the Republican will always make it better and a belief among Democrats that a Democrat will always make it better. Or we're just looking at, you know, we could just be looking at a backwards cause, right? We look at correlations and try to come up with causations, but we already know that urban areas are voting more democratic. And that rural areas are voting more Republican. And it turns out that urban areas did a little bit better uh, or did better than rural areas over the last four years. So it may be that it's it's uh, it's just a you know, it's a co-correlation as opposed to the local economy is actually driving anything. Right. And so so there's a little bit of who knows, but these these correlations break a pattern that we thought we were used to and it may mean that the economy actually becomes less important in elections than it seemed to have been in the past or maybe not the i think the last the last kind of interpretation of this that's really interesting is is really that it's it's quite clear that generally speaking Biden was just more popular now this sounds This sounds a bit trite because he won a much larger portion of the popular vote than Clinton did by about three points Um, and three points doesn't seem all that much. But but the the key thing here is that if we take out Republican voters, right, if we say, okay, everyone who's not still a Republican and again, their turnout was crazy high. Right. And so, again, we're talking about, like, you know, black Americans, Hispanic Americans, or sorry, Latino Americans, white Americans, religious Americans, union Americans, whatever, um, if we say, okay, let's take all the Republicans out and see how he did, he did way better among everyone. Veterans, union workers, black uh, non-Republicans. He did did better among Hispanic Americans that are not Republicans. He did a lot better among white Americans, particularly men, um, even though many of them are Republicans, and especially the non-Republicans. And so there's this... What's hard about exit polls, and especially hard about exit polls, and, and and this is like the big caveat on everything we just said, is that what's hard about exit polls and comparing them is that well turnout changes. Some people that showed up last time didn't show up, and a lot of people that didn't show up last time did show up. And so you see these things shift, and so so it, it's still very difficult to say unless you are following individuals. Right, And tracing those individuals, it's very hard to pick out exactly what's a change due to new people showing up with a perspective that they just didn't express last time at the polls and what is people actually changing their minds. Um, This is made all the more complicated by the fact that it's harder to exit poll people who voted by mail. Right. Um, They can try. They have phone calls, stuff like that. I actually got an exit poll. I got a vote by mail exit poll, which is cool. So, so that makes things a little bit more wonky, but, but ultimately, you know, ultimately it can look like someone is, you know, it it can look like if you just compare these exit polls and vote counts, like, oh, these guys are roughly equally popular, but remember that a vote, a a vote is a combination of popularity and motivation, right? So someone could be the preferred candidate of, you know, and, and it may be that in some ways the polls weren't wrong. It may be the case that Biden was preferred not by 51% of the electorate, but by 55%. And that Republicans just had, which we know they did, had a disproportionate turnout. And so I so I think it's worth noting because of that just bananas Republican turnout, that it looks like, you know, Biden was indeed quite popular, and that uh and that Republican turnout made up for it and made this race close and interesting. And, you know, and if we talk about turnout problems, you know, every everything from, you know, everything from potentially voter ID laws to to ballot boxes not being placed in certain places to maybe just enthusiasm, you know, you, you uh, for better or worse, you don't have, you know, Biden people getting into pickup trucks and driving around honking horns, waving flags, you know, is, is that just a, they love him differently or they love him less? Um, It's hard to say. So there are barriers to voting. There are uh, enthusiasm differences. And those all have to be taken into account when thinking about the difference between Americans' preferences and the actual result. So
1: if we're going to round up the episode here and think about what our big takeaways are from the 2020 election and how it's going to change moving forward. It seems like long-term trends favor Democrats, in particular breaking into Georgia and Arizona. This is, both of these were a big deal. It seems like Ohio, on the other hand, has decisively become Republican, at least for the, the at least for now, for the near future. The reconsider moment, then, I think is well. There's there's a couple. One has to do with voting blocks or category descriptions or stereotypes, whatever you want to call them. In a general sense, right, polls, surveys, exit polls, all of these things split people up by demography, age, sex, gender, ethnicity, race. And because these categories neatly describe lots of people and let us look at this data in a, in a more organized way, we kind of ass- assume that these categories really matter and that they represent strong voting blocks. Sometimes this is true. Oftentimes, as we saw in 2020, it's not
2: yeah and so we will as long as we continue to think about um uh, as long as we continue to think about people based on these like very simple descriptions, they will continue to shock us um I mean it's even the case that you know among white Americans, only fifty two percent of them preferred trump, so we could say like, Ah, yes, white Americans prefer trump, well, yeah, by a little right by like a very you know or rather. Many of them did, but many of them did not. And, and so, so I have just a bone to pick generally with the way that we talk about this stuff. Even just naming, to like even that phrase, white Americans preferred X or black Americans preferred Y. Well, it's like, well, there is no black Americans. There are a lot of black Americans, but there isn't a black Americans. There isn't this thing that is a bunch of people who look the same. That has a preference. That thing doesn't exist. And, and, and it's through this kind of like laziness that, that we've anthropomorphized uh, data generalizations, right? To think that this data generalization or this way of slicing the data is a thing with a preference because it's not. Mm-hmm. And why do we do this, right? Why do we do this? Well, some of it is the, you know, speculating a little bit. Some of it is the when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of thing. So the people who break this stuff down, they, they've got the questions that they can ask. Right, and um, you know, because there's only so much you can learn about someone. Because you can't say, you know, hey, what was your relationship with your parents like, right? Or like, did you, you know, we can know if you went to private or public school, but like, what did you think about that? Did you feel like you got something out of that? Or you know, hey, when you know, it's it's hard to get data around like when did your family immigrate to the United States? And by the way, how well do you feel like you've integrated into into being uh, an American that people just see as American, or how much do you feel like an other? right? All these things, all these, all these nuances that are really the meaningful parts of people's lives are really hard to capture in polling data. And so it means that we never see them. And so what do we get? We get the really simple ways to look at Americans through, through polling and exit poll data. And since that's what we have, it's what we use. And because it's what we use, we start to think that it's really real and important and, and meaty and crunchy. But it's not, it's very ephemeral. Um, Data hammer. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did say two reasons, didn't I? So, hammer nail and uh, ah, right. Yes. I remember reading a book recently. I'm going to plug a totally non political book. It's called Brave New Work. Mm-hmm. And it starts off by saying, You like this, Xander. So, did you know that traffic circles are substantially cheaper to build, cheaper to maintain, allow greater traffic flow through them, and have fewer accidents than traffic lights? I.
1: Okay, sounds great. Let's build more traffic yeah. circles.
2: Cool, right? And we don't, right? We don't, even though they're just objectively better in every possible way. And, and people go like, oh, it's because Americans can't use traffic circles. It's like, yeah, we can't use them because there aren't any, right? Yeah. So we don't know how because nobody's used them. So you can break through the chicken and egg problem, right? It's it's not that Americans are stupid. Um, It's just because that's the way it's always been done.
1: Now, I, I want to make sure that I'm fulfilling on a on a promise that I made at the top of the episode, which is now having discussed oh, right. this data, now having yeah. discussed the reconsider moments and the issues with stereotyping blocks, we've talked about changes in party politics and political parties before. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, and this is just a personal question, pure speculation, I'm just curious what you think. Uh, we're not telling you folks out there what to think. I'm just curious do you think that the Republican Party is still headed for a repositioning, a regrouping? Is the Democratic Party heading for one?
2: Yeah, because I had said I, I have I had made this call over and over again uh, because I looked at the polling data and I said the Republicans are going to get curb stomped in this election. Um, just, you know, you look at you look at, you know, the Nate Silver's kind of average uh, average turnout for for Biden. It was like 55, 40. Or like 53, 45, yeah, 53, 45 or something like that, and I thought he might actually outperform it even, um, so I was super wrong. But you know, you have a win like that, and it gets people to do a little bit of soul-searching in a way that someone squeaking by doesn't, although again, defeating an incumbent president is meaningful. Um, and you notice the Republicans went through some big changes after George Herbert Walker Bush was defeated in 1992. right The Republican Party started to change. Um, and you had very different campaign managers, the Karl Rove types, show up. And so could the Republican Party change in a major way? Maybe, very much maybe. And um, I think there are some, I do think there are some lessons learned the, the, for both parties. I think the the big question is, are they going to tweak a little bit? Um, or are they going to be radically different? And the real question, I think, is... Different from what? Are we talking about the Republican Party of 2015, or are we talking about the Republican Party of 2019? Because the Republican Party of 2019 is already radically different from the Republican Party of 2015, right? The Republican Party, for the first time in its history, did not publish a platform for this election, right? Just didn't bother, and they just they quite explicitly said, "Yeah, I mean, whatever Trump wants to do, we'll just do it." So it's already a very transformed party. So the hard part about this is that we're looking at two big variables that are changing. One of them is changing very slowly. Um, it is demographic trends. One of them is changing real fast. And it's that Trump's not going to be in office um, and might be in jail. So it will be, I do think, like a key thing about the future of the Republican Party, at least, which will shape the future of the Democratic Party. Right. These guys ping off each other all the time because they, they're doing all sorts of micro polling and looking for ways to like scoop up little groups here and there, you know. Uh, and. And which is very different in the past. So I'm going to actually going to say one more thing about this. But um, so, like, I think whether Trump is in jail or whether he has a show on Newsmax is actually going to make a big difference in how these parties transform. I think if he has a show on Newsmax, he's still going to capture a lot of the um, a lot of the electorate or he's, he's going to capture a lot of like a lot of the the attention of Americans uh, And if he's if he's in jail, that is going to happen less because he won't have a show on Newsmax. So the Trump fa- in the short term, the Trump factor is going to be huge. And then in the you know, let's say Trump is a for whatever reason, less of a force who is going to kind of fill that void. Is it going to be Mitt Romney again? Maybe not. Right. Because like Mitt Romney and Trump are just unrecognizable. They shouldn't be in the same party. They both agree with me. And and therefore. If Trump goes, there's going to be a bit of a vacuum left because, again, the Republicans tore up so much of what was important to them for so long and so much of the stuff that defined them. Can they just go back to the way things were and have more of a Mitt Romney or John McCain type running around? I don't know. Um, Something's got to change because I think the way that Republican voters think about the world has changed. But it's also the case that Democratic voters have changed the way they think about the world. Right. Like no Democratic voter would vote for John Kerry in a primary, Um, and they certainly wouldn't vote for Bill Clinton. So both of these parties have evolved um, the Republican Party a little bit more violently recently, and they're going to change again. The thing the probably the bigger question you're asking is, like, is there going to be a major realignment? Like, are we going to have a Republican Party that wins the majority of votes of color anytime soon? Probably not. But I think one of the reasons a major realignment is less likely is that these major realignments happen when things are really out of whack and out of kilter. You know, something's got to be way, way lopsided for like the the, the rubber band to snap, ca- cause a Southern strategy, 1960s kind of realignment. And I think the reason that's less likely is that there's so much better access to data and so much better, exp- you know, so much better uh, kind of not just data about what, what, voters want, because that's one thing, but data about how messaging is resonating with them, which is way more important, that I think you're going to constantly have competition around the margins for a combination of undecided voters and turnout that can evolve very quickly, but doesn't have to have the kind of violent realignment that we saw in you know the 1860s and then the 1960s. So my thought is that the kind of realignment I was thinking about is less likely Because I think this election showed that where you have a disadvantage somewhere, there's always a competitive opportunity to go get an advantage elsewhere. And data gives both parties the power to do that, to see their relative strengths and weaknesses and use their resources well so they don't ever get just totally washed aside.
1: Well, if that's what you think now, and you thought something differently before, then that means you're a flip-flopper and no one's ever going to
2: trust you again. It's true. I think I've (laughs) changed my mind and therefore have no credibility.
1: (laughs) Uh oh, folks, I it's been an interesting election season, if you want to call it that, and it's certainly not over. We will uh we we'll, we have a lot more to say. We'll 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 be with you over the next couple of months, but if I can make an off topic plea to everyone, please, the winner's not looking good. Uh do the basic things that you need to do to try to keep your fellow Americans safe. Wear masks, do the social distancing thing. I mean, if you look at the trends for the country, it's really looking terrible. So all it's in, awful. It, yeah. It we're all in this together. And you can save lives by taking very, very simple, um, mildly irritating, but very simple behaviors.
2: Well, sometimes quite fashionable. I was telling Xander when I <laughs> like when I when I saw him saw a photo of him with the mask, like Xander in a black mask is like very tactical. Black mask and sunglasses, very tactical, <laughs> mysterious, cool. Um, I'm into it. And uh, I've got my American flag mask. You know, um, I love being able to to put my patriotism on my face. Now that's that, that got a little bit cheesy, but like, uh, here's my perspective on it: like, wear a goddamn mask, get over it, Karen. Let's get out of here.
1: And with that, we'll say, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is
2: Xander signing off. This is Eric signing off. Stay safe, everyone.